This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we talk with author and international educator Tracy Malone about the signs of a covert narcissist, narcissistic parents, passive-aggressive behavior, and divorce. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, everybody. Today on our show, we have author and international educator Tracy Malone. We're going to talk about a lot of great stuff. But before we get started, if you haven't been to our website recently and want to be a guest on our Survivor Story show, because we always need stories, please do send in your stories. Go to NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form, press that button, and we will go from there. And also at our website, we have a community support forum there. It's your very own safe social network. Also on there are episodes that have never made it to air. There are also episodes that are ad-free episodes, or you can just join it to support the show. So do that as well, but on this forum. We have forum boards. We have Zoom meetings every Wednesdays and Saturday nights. We have meditation nights. And I think on Saturday we have a new moon candle lighting ceremony for new beginnings night. So if you want extra support, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, press that community support button. And if you need even more support, please do go to DomesticShelters.org. So if you or someone you know are experiencing abuse, you are not alone. DomesticShelters.org offers an extensive library of articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you're experiencing, and they can connect you with local resources and find ways for you to heal and move forward. So please do go to DomesticShelters.org to access this free resource today. And that's it. That's all for today, everyone. I hope you enjoy my interview conversation with Tracy Malone. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, everyone. Today with me, I have Tracy Malone. How are you? 
I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for being here. And for those that don't know Tracy, Tracy is an author and a survivor of narcissistic abuse. And she is also an international educator, and she can be found at NarcissistAbuseSupport.com. And Tracy also has a new book out called Divorce Your Narcissist. You can't make this shit up. And I'm so happy to have you on our show today. Today, we're going to talk about uh, covert narcissists. We're going to talk about divorcing a narcissist, and we're going to take audience questions as well. And I was introduced to you uh, for the first time in 2019 uh, when I was starting out this podcast, when I had no idea what I was doing, and I would always go to your website to find out more information And you were pretty much the first place I was going to, you know, I wasn't seeking help per se, but uh, I was just seeking education. And you have a wonderful website uh, with so many things there. So uh, thank you because you helped me on my journey here. So you're welcome. That was my goal. I said, if I could just educate one person, it would make it all worth it. So (laughs) well, well, you did. And, you know, today we're going to start off with talking about, uh, you know, covert narcissism. And uh, before we do that, let's get a definition, I guess, a distinction between what is an overt narcissist and a covert narcissist. Sure. So um, the the um, overt narcissist is the one we, we typically think of, the one that's full of themselves, very grandiose. Everything's about them. They can do no wrong. They're perfect. You know, that they're very flamboyant, I call it, where you can see their narcissism coming through, right? And a, a covert narcissist is is much more stealth. Um, they they can appear quite shy and and you know, sort of not that grandiose, um, bigger than life, but still having these these traits of narcissism. Um and it's 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 different because and we'll get into a lot of the details, but it is different because it's much harder to identify. And victims don't see it until much later. And for those that listen to our survivor story episodes, most of them, pretty much all of them, are covert narcissist stories. It's it's it seems to be probably very rare that someone who is a guest on our survivor story uh, episode has gone into a relationship with a, with an overt narcissist. Everyone is theirs because they feel that they've been hoodwinked, uh, tricked. And the feeling of that of being conned, and that's taking that's putting it in the in the nicest way uh, I can, uh, is is something that has so many people so shaken up after uh, trying to figure out what is gone on, why they feel the way they do, and the stir of emotions and, and confusion. So when it comes to uh, signs of a covert narcissist. Uh, Can you give us uh, signs of a covert narcissist and examples as well? Sure, sure. So my two narcissists, uh, besides family, they don't count and they're just on the the roster. But my two (laughs) narcissists... What do you mean? They're just on the roster? They're just part of the whole, like, let's add them up. How many, like, narcissists I've had in my life, right? 
they they weren't as covert um, as as the two that I was with, and so um, you know I, I really lived it, and it, it becomes something you just can't even really believe it. And and the, the hardest part for people in this identification of a covert is because they don't start out that way. In my book, I describe it as is you know if you put the frog into a pot of boiling water, you know they'll know it, but if you turn it up real slow, it's a slow thing. You don't even know you're boiling to death. That's how it is with a, a covert narcissist, because it comes off where everything that they are doing is covert. Um, everything they're doing is stealth and behind the scenes. Like they, they trick you into so many things. And if you think about the beginning of a narcissist, it, it's, you know, we call it the love bombing stage. And I hate I don't hate that word. I just think it, it doesn't really describe it amply, because what happens is. To me, that's very mechanical. Um, it's really when you're with them, it feels like chemistry. There's nothing better. Like nobody has ever loved you this much and you just fall for this act. And everything on a with a narcissist is on a spectrum, right? So they can show a little bit of this and a little bit of that, or they can be full on in any direction. So when we come into like discerning, this is what you'll see as a covert, keep that in mind. Because not all do this, not all do that. It's a dance. And every single one of them, I think their persona and sort of their act, their mask, if you would, is different. Even though they're going to pull the same tactics and strategies and, and, and the things that they're going to do. But they're basing their role, their mask on you, on me, right? And so it's different. If they go to the next girl, they will have a different and altered kind of thing, I was lucky enough, if you want to call it that way, but I was lucky enough to uh, end up being really good friends with my last ex's next supply. And oh my gosh, when we compare notes of how he treated her and how he treated me, they were completely dependent on what we were looking for. Um, and he would do it differently. I remember one thing we, we thought was really amazing was she liked country music. And he would send her country songs every day. And, and that was their thing. If I played country music, he'd walk in the house and be like, turn that off. I hate that stuff. Right. And it was like, this is the same guy. So the, the roles that he took on were based on what we're looking for. So always keep that in mind as you look at any list for narcissistic abuse. Right. At the beginning, the charm is amazing. Oh no! I was gonna say I didn't want to cut you off there. I, I was <laughs> sorry, but I was I wanted to say if you could change the term love bombing to anything anything else, what would you actually call it? I'm not sure. I just think that it is that that is that um, mask you know, building. Mask. It, it's a chemistry. It's a fake chemistry. Okay. It's some with that where they are looking because like that's what gets us right. We we fall in with this chemistry of. <gasps> Addiction building. Addiction building. That's a really good one, right? Okay. Because it is the tactic. Like the tactic of love bombing is to intentionally like be the most perfect thing for you. But it is to capture your attention and to capture your heart. And, and you know, really that chemistry, you feel it, you're hooked. That's the difference to me. The trap. The trap. I actually wrote that down. I wrote the hook equals oh, charm. Yeah. <laughs> on, on, on the Survivor Story episode, I, I usually it, uh, it just naturally comes out of my mouth. I'm like, where did they have you hook, line, and sinker? Oh, yeah. Like, when was that the last? There's like all the build, but what was the last? 
big hook that really got in there where you're sold. Absolutely. And it's different for everyone, right? If you think about another part of the mask and the building of, of that chemistry is how they hook your friends. Like if you meet your, if they meet your friends and family, boy, you are the best thing since sliced bread. They show public displays of affection. Everyone's going, oh my God, if you don't marry him, I will. My father said that. Like, that's creepy. But the show of how grandiosely wonderful they are is just put on display. And then we go, okay, again, now my friends and family, this, that was, you know, my, my second marriage and my friends and family were not going to let me make a mistake. So when he started to charm them, he sold them, which then made me feel safe enough to be with him because all my friends said, oh, he's great. Don't leave him. He's wonderful. He's not like your last one. (laughs) Think about that, right? It's the hook and the confirmation from your audience and your friends that really hooks people. So uh, I rudely interrupted you before. Where were we? First of all, everyone, isn't Tracy great? (laughs) Um, So we were talking about, I guess, the signs of a covert partner. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess, did we go through one yet? Or no, 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 we we haven't gone through one yet. We're just chatting here like old friends. It's important to people to know, you know, that, that, you know, a covert narcissist rushes intimacy. They rush the relationship. And so that intense phase where they're charming and all that, you need to know that's a sign. That's not normal that you have a soulmate after 30 days. It's not normal. These are the things you have to look for. You know, um, we can go into the negative things that they are, and, and that's certainly something. But we don't get hooked. The negative things show up later. We get hooked from all the sweetness and the charm and the butterflies and roses, right? That's how it feels to be with someone and that's how they hook us. Once we are hooked, the next stage is the devalue stage. That's where you start to do things that aren't right. They start to point out they don't like the way you load the dishwasher. Stupid little things become big. And then in that stage, what they're trying to do is hook us into like trying harder, Oh, I'll do better. Oh, I shouldn't have made that for dinner. I'll do better, right? The whole thing becomes a hook to keep you into that next stage. That's where they start to do the icky things. Um, and you start to see that they're not as secure and, and um, you know, they're more vulnerable than you think. Because that first part where they were so charming, you thought, oh, my gosh, they're so confident. They're so this. And then you see these little eeks. Some of the times it comes out in the form of jealousy. Um, sometimes they can be very highly stressed. They can be very envious of others, right? And again, spectrum. Not all of them are going to be this sort of person, but you'll start to see these little tiny differences from that perfect person we had in stage one to, well, that was weird. Why would they say that about my friends or just little tiny things? that are always then sort of swept under the covers because of the way that they're going to try to cook. If you ask questions or try to set a boundary, that's where you're going to move into another stage because now you actually want something. What? (laughs) We recently had someone on our survivor story episode where the abuse didn't happen until 
they were figured out or until they figured out what was kind of going on. And they were in a relationship for 15 years and nothing was wrong. Yeah. It was a perfect relationship. Mm-hmm. And the person's personality was someone who went along with things, n- n- never put up a stink about anything. There was no reason to because the person was in a constant love bomb and they were in a constant love bomb in the sense they were so overdoing things all the time that um why would you ever question anything so when things were asked there's you're not putting up a stink about anything because there's no arguments about anything and then as soon as they figured out one day that they saw something on a text 15 years later and they questioned them on it literally within Three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, 15 years was out the window and it unraveled so fast. And that Mm. person that was hiding for so long Mm -hmm. came out with probably every little thing we're about to discuss here today of the signs. But it took Mm -hmm. 15 years for those things to pop out of there. And then there was a different human being who was devaluing. Um, who it turns out has been a cheater who, you know, all these things, you know, and, and there's probably a lot that that person still didn't even know it was kind of going on because there are some people that are so good at, you know, always being good. So you don't see what's going on or lurking in, in the background because sometimes you serve a specific purpose and for different people, that purpose can be different things. And in this person's case, the purpose was that this person, I can show them to other people that I'm a good person. You know, mm-hmm. I look at this person I'm with. It was part of the identity of everything. And to ruin that identity would be something that they didn't want to happen. So it was all part of all the pathology is different for everyone and the reasons for things. Absolutely. And it's, it's so, it's so confusing. I mean, that's one of the biggest signs for the victim is things aren't quite adding up, but, you know, as you said, in, I would say 90% of the cases with a covert narcissist, I have a client 40 years, 40 years. And the, and this all happened what you're describing, right? Just flick on a switch and they're so good at knowing how to silence you that during that 20 years, 10 years, 15 years that you have been going along with everything that you never really ask questions. Right. Um, my ex-husband just was like the love bomber. Like I'm talking like 15 dozen roses and like, who does that? You know, and it was, I gave my son a $3,000 Halloween party for an eight-year-old for six little boys. And, and it was like, what are you doing? But actually that was love bombing my child so that I would be hooked. Right. That was like, oh my gosh, he loves my child more than his husband, than his own father. Right. Those kind of tactics leave you to not ask the questions because like, as soon as they do something bad, as mild as it might be, all they have to do is love bomb you. You accept them back. You don't ask any more questions. It goes on for another year. Very typical behavior. But really good point. And of course, that that question you talked about is we all have we're here for a reason. 
It's a supply. This is the fuel, if you would, for what drives them. Some people are perfect housewives, good mother and father to child, whatever it is, um, money person. They look for the, the, the supply that you are giving them. If you pull it back or you set that boundary is where you're going to have the, the switch flipped. And that boiling frog is going to know he's in the boiling pot but still not necessarily have the words. I didn't have the words through my entire divorce or my 10-year marriage. Um, And then all of a sudden, everything became quite clear and quite evident of what was going on. So, uh, you know, I guess let's go back to uh, the signs and what we say is more of the patterns that have Mm. formed after a while that we can say that these are the signs. Right. Sure. So lack of empathy. Right. I mean, that's like right out of the DSM five, one of their little criteria. That's for all narcissists. But with a a covert narcissist, um, you know, they just don't um, show any empathy for others. That's why you'll see it first before you see them doing no empathy to you. Um, you will see them like not caring about this or that. And it's just small little things. And you'll be like, that's weird. Or you'll excuse it away while they're having a bad day. You'll see that, right? Um, You will find them shaming people, blaming you. Like, again, these are not normal behaviors with somebody. So they're kind of looking at that. They can be um, using tactics like the silent treatment. So those are the behaviors you're going to see, right? Um, But they are completely self-absorbed. And they have no lack of empathy, right? So those are some of the things. Um, they they can be, um, they have very low self-worth. And so even though they might appear to be this chipper thing, they're, they're, they get wounded very easily. Dare someone say something bad to them. Uh, a lot of narcissists um, go through jobs over and over. It's because the boss, like, made a critique. They can't handle that. They can't handle that because it, it blows their emotion. They're already at so such low, you know, inner self-esteem that one comment from the boss means they're changing jobs. It also means, oh, they've seen through me. So they have to change their situation. So uh, lying is a big one. Cheating, of course. Um, so, you know, another thing that I have uh, down here on my list uh, I, I, is, is the secret grandiosity um, mm. uh, of them. And I think that one's interesting because a lot of people think of, uh, you know, overt narcissist as being grandiose and then a covert one, maybe not being so grandiose that why does this person like think this way? Look at their job or their standing in society and what they have like secretly, you know, they might look down on people that do certain things. Is that also, um, you know, and I guess in there, an entitlement within that grandiosity, would you say? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, um, you know, the, the, the secret grandiosity that they might be showing is um, this sense of their, their entitlement, but they're better than everyone. Again, it goes back to their boss. It goes back to the neighbors. They're always comparing. My husband had to have, like, I think one year he bought, like, 11 brand new iPhones because it was, like, iPhone five, five point one, five and he would buy a new phone. He had to be the best. He had to show everyone how cool he was. The best. The best. I mean <laughs> you're the best because you stood in line for four hours in the middle of the night. 
No, but to them, it was status, right? Status is absolutely critical. So wherever their spectrum is, wherever they tap into for what they want to show off, some people are car people, got to show off with the big car, the grandiosity of look at me, but meanwhile, I'm shy, but then they buy a red Ferrari and drive down the street. You know, it's, it's that need for attention. Oh, and that also throws in there, uh, you know, talking about all these things, uh, if you're noticing that they're envious of other people, mm-hmm. then, uh, you know, that's a sign that you might start noticing. It might not be a, a thing that they might not be doing to you per se and devaluing you. But if you start noticing them discussing other people about what they have, uh, you know, and wealth and physical attribute, attributes, family status or, or, or things like that, uh, power. And if they seem like they're coming off as envious, that's another kind of thing you can check off on your checklist of things that might be going on uh, in a negative way that uh, you might not be seeing uh, previously. Absolutely. And again, these are so subtle. That's why it doesn't feel like abuse. They're not punching you in the face they're just simply like comparing you to others eventually right as they're doing that sort of envious of others well you know what here's where the devalue comes in you know you really don't look good in those jeans you should get new ones or you should really talk like this or you shouldn't do that right because they're so worried about that status that they're trying to mold you into what they want and most victims are like, oh, that's so sweet. Of course, I'll be complying and I'll do whatever it is you wanted because you're trying to win the love of this person. So it, it it's a setup for them to really start to like pick everything apart about you by comparing you to others in that, like, I want that wife or I want that husband. So what else do you have on your list over there? <laughs> I've got 11 pages if you really want to know. Oh, that. I want to know everything. <laughs> I'm going to open up my bag of chips over here, sit back and listen to what you got to say. Bring it on. (laughs) Bring it on. Um, You know, again, we're talking about romantic relationships primarily right now, but you can have covert parents as well. You can have covert bosses as well. And so it's important to know that, again, a lot of the things we've talked about are relationship based, but the reality is they can be anywhere. If we've got a covert narcissistic parent, um, everybody thinks they're the greatest parents in the world. And um, nobody understands that there's abuse at home. That's part of the covertness is they hide it. It just becomes something that in public, they're one way. This is the hugest red flag. Should have had it first. In public, they are better than sliced bread. You're better than sliced bread. Your kids are better than sliced bread. You get them into the car after a soccer game and they're ridiculing the kid going, how could you miss that ball? You embarrassed me. You know, their status is above the fact that your kid just missed the ball. But that's that's the secret abuse is when they get in the car and they start yelling and screaming. And then they arrive at the team dinner, open the door and they've got a big smile on their face. And you're like, you're just reeling from this like beating that you took in the car. Like, what just happened? And then you've got to come out and become a smile. And all of a sudden, everyone's charmed by them. And you go into this cycle and you're just like, all of the abuse comes behind hidden doors, right? That's a big difference between the overt and the covert. Overts can be much more, again, grandiose in their abuse and and that sort of thing. 
but a covert person is going to hide their abuse. And so, again, like the boiling frog, how do they hide it? They hide it with passive-aggressive little digs to you. And again, you know, shaming you, gaslighting you. Tell me what you know about gaslighting. Tell me what, what what I know about gaslighting? Yeah. Um, you know, off the top of my head, as far as gaslighting goes, it's when, you know, someone, it, it can either be, you know, I said something and then you are, you're telling me that that I like that was never said, or it can be you said something and then telling you I never said that it's um, there to cause you confusion about um, the reality of a situation it's done to make you crazy. And then at the same time, I believe with some of them, I truly believe that they think it's true. Yeah, that was an excellent, I give you a big hand, was an excellent definition. Um, And it is, it's there to, you know, again, this is a tactic. It's to slowly make you think that you're going crazy. I I don't remember that. I, oh my, really? And and you don't sit there and fight back and be like, no, I definitely didn't say that. And they'll be so convincing to convince you. And then you'll be like, I'm confused. Did I say it? And eventually you give up. And again, if you're in one of these long-term 40-year relationships, you've given up a whole lot of the times where you just stop fighting because it wasn't worth the fight because you're just not even sure what's happening, right? But that is such an important step as they start out with that. Yeah, because with gaslighting, it's got a double-edged sword in the sense of it creates self – it creates doubt within uh, what has just happened in the situation, which is one thing. And then the second part of it, it starts creating, especially over time, uh, self-doubt within your own decision-making abilities. And once the decision-making ability of yourself has been, has, and doubt has been created within it, at that point, you are royally screwed Mm -hmm. because uh, you don't, at that point, it's like, uh, you don't know what is up, down, left, or right anymore. And if you can't trust yourself, then uh, in anything that has happened uh, going forward, then you have literally lost control of the car and you're careening and someone else has control of the car um, completely at that point. Right. That's a, that's a really good way to say it. Um, you know, if you, you just said, if you can't trust yourself, right, the bottom line is, if you can't trust yourself, they've just won. It worked, right? And that's the point where they put in the, but you can trust me, I've always got your back. And so you're sitting there talking to the abuser, and they're convincing you that what they're saying is true. And it's okay if you have a bad memory or it's okay that you, you know, don't remember things, uh, you know, that's just one of your weaknesses, but I'm here to save you. And they're giving you a fake story. They're giving you a fake mind, but they've built that trust in you so that when you don't believe in yourself anymore, that they're your only alternative. That is like the language of abuse, right? To be in that control position. Um, Gaslighting starts out to test the control ability of you, right? If you don't 
pass the test at the very beginning and you're like, no, that totally didn't happen. And you're not sitting there with a confused look on your face. Like they're not going to want to be with you. They want someone that is controllable and someone that it's very gentle, very slow, steady drip until they really get it. And then they can turn the dial up because now you're hooked. You see them as your savior in, in these confusing moments. And, and before you know it, you're, you know, you're sitting there really emotionally abused because that's where it, it hurts your own self, where you stop believing in yourself. And with a covert parent specifically with the mm-hmm. gaslighting that's going on, a child has no frame of reference mm-hmm. of what life was like beforehand. Mm-hmm. So that's the reality that they live in, which makes it all the more impossible to figure out what's going on. And you hope for that person that they get some sort of experience at a friend's house. Of, <clears throat> oh, this is normal. Like that's like the first check. Oh, this yeah. is, this is different. That's normal. Yeah, exactly. So with a, with a narcissistic covert parents, my, my parents were covert and there's this story that's formed. So if you question something like, you know, Teresa's mother never does that, or, you know, every other family does this or whatever you're comparing them to, they build this story. And for me, I can recite it almost like I was a little trained monkey. Oh, we grew up in Westport, Connecticut, and we lived on the water, and our yacht was parked outside, and blah, 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 and Martha Stewart was our family. This is what the stuff they told me. This is the line. So whatever you're hearing about Teresa's family, that's bullshit. We're fine, and you have to accept that we live a good life. So they've cast this story that the children then sort of adopt as, oh, the truth. When they question something, they adopt that story and go, Oh, that's right. We grew up in the water, blah, 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 right? The reality is that they were terrible parents. And, like, they would take their yacht and leave for the summer and leave three little children under 12 home for the summer. And their friends were, you know, oh, they're they're the best parents. That was the funniest thing. I, I went to a funeral back in Connecticut this summer, and I, I witnessed and saw all of these old mother friends. And they were just like, your mother loved you so much. And I'm sitting there gagging, going, really, really? So a mother would leave home children under 12 for a summer? Like, I don't care how rich you are, that's probably not legal, right? But the way that they cast the story to their friends, they thought they were better than sliced bread. They thought they were the best parents on the world. But that's the story they're giving everybody, right? Everyone's got this sort of thing. And and I'm not saying everyone's going to have the Yacht Club story. I'm saying that was what my family drilled into my head. If I questioned something and said, that's not right, or why can't we do like what other families do, you know? That's where they reinforce this. You believe this, and they would brainwash you into that story. So that's part of being a sign of a covert parent, which is uh, a physical absence, an emotional mm-hmm. absence as well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when it comes to, uh, I guess, other things that happen within that family unit, um, what else do you have on the list? 
Well, they are always comparing you to others. You know, why can't you be as good as that kid? They played the violin. Again, it's their status, not your ability to play the violin. So they're always comparing you. And, you know, you start to feel like you're not good enough because there's always someone else that's done it better. And it's usually their friend's kids. And so that's a very common thing. Um, They don't like to give you attention. You're just a little mosquito buzzing around their head. And so um, they can get quite angry. And again, anger can look different ways with a covert. It doesn't have to be screaming, yelling, and throwing plates, which we all equate to an abusive situation, right? It's the, I'm not going to talk to you and ghost you for a little while or punish you, things like that for just asking a simple question. So those are very thing. Um, Narcissistic parents, their children are not separate from their brain. They are an extension of themselves. So if you are the good student and you do everything right and your parents are like so super proud of you, but that child you would think would have a pretty easy life. They, they were in the good graces of the parent, the pressure on them. You only got a 98 or I see that you just graduated from Yale, but your hair looks like crap today, daughter. Instead of like, yay, on the on the soccer field of getting your diploma, there's something wrong. You should have done that with your hair. Why did you choose that outfit? It's these little nitpicky things that just make you sit there and feel like I'm never going to be good enough. Um, so they exploit their children if they are that honorable student or the one they can be proud of whatever level they have right if they can show there and be i'm the one that is you know the perfect child that perfect child ends up even more screwed up than the the scapegoaty child who like sort of didn't do what the parents wanted i was the scapegoat i was the forgotten and i sort of just didn't do whatever they wanted. I failed gym in college just to piss them off. And <laughs> I was like, I was shunned for that. And that was okay. But at the same time, that pressure to do, because you're, you're them. If you don't reflect good, then they have to like tell everyone that you're so screwed up and, and that becomes part of their story. So it's a lot of pressure to be the person the, the person they want you to be and they exploit you even if you are or if you aren't doesn't matter. The skateboard is actually the only one that usually survives because they've kind of grown up going, I don't really care about them. So they have an independent path. The the golden and the other roles of children are, I can never be good enough. I try, I get a hundred. Why didn't I get 104? Why didn't you get the bonus question? You know, they're sitting there and everyone's fighting to just get their attention. So these are, a lot of behaviors within the covert relationship, covert uh, parent. It can happen with the covert boss. And there's different types of behaviors, there's, but there's aggressive behaviors. And mm-hmm. then there are passive aggressive behaviors. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to be someone who's narcissistic to have passive aggressive behaviors. It's just, you know, some, these are the things we kind of learned <laughs> growing up. We don't know how to deal with our anger properly. So uh, let's discuss passive aggressive behavior uh, within the relationship and what those signs 
are. And I guess to to define passive-aggressive behavior, passive-aggressive behavior are those that involve acting indirectly aggressive rather than directly aggressive. Passive-aggressive people regular, regularly exhibit resistance to requests or demands from family and other individuals, often by procrastinating, expressing, expressing sullenness, or acting stubborn. So what are the signs? Signs. Well, the, the different types of things that you can see are, you know, obviously the verbal abuse. We've talked about that. And um, they can actually use the verbal abuse in a joking way. Like they can sit there and make jokes about you and then be like, only kidding, you know, or, or you know, you're just so... It, in so sensitive. You're so sensitive that I can't tell you that you look terrible today. That's something you better work on, right? So it's sort of, you know, again, the humor could be something like whatever it is, we've all heard it where this rejection is, is something that's cloaked in humor. And then it's just like, oh, get over it. You're just being, you know, they blame it back on you. Um, the silent treatment is a really big one, right? Having someone do the silent treatment to you um, or, or blaming you. If they are going to sit there and everything's your fault, that's passive aggressive. Um, ignoring you. Reactive abuse is passive aggressive. So reactive abuse is where they push you and push you and push you until you actually say no more and you react and you just speak up. And then they attack. So that's one of the big ones. So another thing on our list is gossip. So let's talk about gossip. It's one of the things that everyone should work on because everyone might gossip here or there in their life. But just gossiping in general and doing it in a negative way, um, done in a way to undermine you. Mm-hmm. Um, done in a way to, you know, uh, attack you in that kind of, which I guess it goes along with like a criticism as well. Um, mm-hmm. and it's done to make the other person feel superior is the best way I guess you could put it. Absolutely. And, and, and if you think about the word gossip, right, that is the definition of a smear campaign. They're telling people things about you. If they were telling things about you that were great and lovely, it wouldn't be gossip and it wouldn't be smearing you. It would be, oh, my daughter's so great, like a normal parent would do, right? Oh, look, she just wrote a book. Hooray. But instead, they do. They use that and they're, they're almost turning other people against you with that gossiping so that you walk into a situation and everybody knows something that you don't know. And so you just feel awkward and, and you know, like what just happened. And instead of you know, saying to the person straight up, Hey, this is my issue with you. Mm-hmm. Let's discuss this. Right. And being like, Hey, let's do this in a mature way. This is how da 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 da. Instead, they leave you out of the equation mm-hmm. and then tell everyone of what's going on, which is just a really odd, like kind of way to deal with the problem. It's, it's not deal. It's, it's, I don't even, even know what you call that. It's not dealing with the problem. It's, um, creating a bigger problem. Absolutely. And if you think about how we feel when all these things happen, right? Like if they're gossiping and smearing you and that sort of thing, you feel like the bad guy. Like that we internalize. I'm not good enough, right? You feel like you're unsafe. Like my family is sitting here telling these lies. Um, 
it's not fair. You feel disconnected from the family unit. You feel trapped sometimes if you're in a marriage, manipulated, controlled. Um, There's so many things that tie into that, that then become part of our DNA of our emotions, like the DNA of I'm not good enough or I'm powerless then triggers us when we get into a relationship later where someone does that, those emotions, those feelings come back, even though it's a different place and time and person. So now that we've gone through all of the passive aggressive behaviors, let's talk about divorce. Shall we? Tell us about your book. Let's go into divorce. Um, I want to just say that, a covert narcissist in divorce is so much harder to divorce um, because the public reputation that they have gone out and, and sold the world. Everybody's just like, oh, you can't mean that. About- they never did that. They're so wonderful. You have the best husband, the best wife. And that public image is sold. So you have to overcome that. When you're divorced, when you start to really see what happened and use the verbiage. So it's a much different battle because now they've gotten all your friends and family that they coerced at that first dinner party to sit there and tell you how great they are. And now you shouldn't leave them. You're so lucky to have them, right? So it it becomes a different battle in divorce um, because they will pull many more tricks. Um, What do you want to know about divorcing a narcissist? well, well Well, tell us everything about your book. Um, well, I named it, You Can't Make This Shit Up, um, after three people in one day said that to me and that I was coaching. And I'm like, okay, that's it. I mean, I've heard it a thousand times, but three in a day, that's a sign. I'll take it. Um, the strategies that they use are all very similar. You can expect them to stonewall. You can expect them to lie. And, and they take the lying one step further. To you, they're just lying about, oh, I didn't cheat. I never did that. But, but then they go into court. And they lie about you and they, they, they sit there and, you know, it becomes false allegations. It, it amplifies from the normal lie of them telling your friends and neighbors that you drink too much, things like that. It becomes, you're a bad parent. You stole the money. You did this. So while you're sitting there battling that, that affront of these fake lies that are coming and being tossed at you and you have to now defend um, you're in this whirlwind. You can't possibly look at what they're doing. It's their strategy to throw so much stuff against you that you're in defense mode. You're sitting there fighting for your life to get out of the box and like just let the truth be told. And the reality is that that's you know going to be a very difficult journey because they have put all of these people in place that are going to be by their side and go, Oh, I can't believe anything about them. They never did any of that. You're making it up. You know, you're just whatever your friends are going to say stupid things. Um, stonewalling tactics, um, you know, just mirroring things and, and saying you did them, but, um, hiding tactics and, and hiding money, hiding assets, um, expect them to do that. There's, there's really very little few of them that don't. I, I, I work with lots and lots of divorcing clients and it's it's just almost like a checklist. Yep, they're going to do that. They're going to do that. In my book, I talked to and worked with and did a survey of about 2,000 people. I said, what tricks were pulled on you? And they told me sometimes 
without a single period or paragraph break and it would be three pages long because they're just rambling you know all that stuff happened and i diluted it down to okay these people were all arrested these people had things happen with their kids and i little had piles all over my living room and then i extracted what the lesson should have been like if we had known that they could turn off the electricity i should have put that in my own name oh didn't think about that you know strategies like that we have something in the book that um i call the gray areas of a divorce decree and because i work with people post-divorce also i see like your lawyer they just think this is another divorce and so what they think is oh it's a win daddy pays for college it says that right here in the decree what are you complaining about and you're going oh okay that's a good thing i won yeah great until it's time for the kids to go to college. And then, and I have this in the book. And then all of a sudden, daddy's going, yeah, I was thinking community college. I don't really care that they got into Brown. I don't really want to pay that. It just says I have to pay. It doesn't say how much. That's the gray areas, right? That's where they can take advantage of what was written in the decree and mold it the way they want to. Oh, it says Christmas holiday. I get them Christmas this year. You get them next year. Well, in the gray area means they pick them up on Christmas Eve and they don't bring them back till after winter break, two weeks later. And the mother's sitting there calling the police. I want my children back. He's only supposed to have them for Christmas. And sorry, I keep saying he, but, you know, this is what they're only supposed to have them. And the kids aren't coming back. And now you either get a legal battle or you have to put that in the decree. Christmas starts at 8 a.m. You have them dropped off by 5, and then you will not have post-divorce abuse. That's the biggest thing in the book is how to do those things. The lessons of what could happen are like, oh, let me protect myself. Like, I went to contempt of court hearing with many clients, and one of them is in the book, so I can tell the story. But, like, her husband was ordered to sell some of the rental properties, take her name off the others. There were six, sell one, give her $300,000. That's all it said. She went, yay, I won. Well, the problem was it didn't say how soon he had to do it. This was two years later when I went to court with her. She had already filed motions to comply, motions to compel, motions of contempt. And it was $20,000 by the time she got into that courtroom to like defend and say what happened here and so like her lawyer then said judge could you please like cover this twenty thousand dollars in the divorce decree you know why should why should she be paying he was ordered to do this two years ago and the judge literally put her hands together and said i would love to but it wasn't in the original decree so anything i have a clause in my book called what if they don't clause Anything they're supposed to do, you add the what if they don't clause to the decree and they would pay that legal fee because now it is in the decree like the judge had wished. So those are the kind of things that you're going to find in here, the stories, the lessons. I also um, have contributions from 26 authors and like lawyers and coaches and Tina Swiffin and Rebecca Zong and mediators. So all of these people have said, don't do this, do this, this will help you. So you've got this combination of all of these experts putting into one book, as well as all of the survivor stories and the legal stuff, like the what if they don't clause, 
that no one else has ever talked about. I also put in the book, sorry, I'm rambling. Oh, you're um, not rambling. This is a, a wonderful information. So thank you. Um, I also put in the book, I, I list out the covert, the overt, the malignant, all of the different types of narcissists. And I added two more that no one ever talks about. And I added them because it makes a huge difference in divorce. So the rich narcissist is one who is far more entitled than the normal narcissist. It's their money and they're never going to let you have it. So the rich narcissist, you have to understand what their, their persona is and what the possibilities are. Also, a poor narcissist, like, sounds like, really, there's such thing as a poor narcissist? Of course there is, right? But the poor narcissist has different goals. The poor narcissist is there to get your money because they're entitled to your money, not you protecting theirs. So if you don't understand the difference between, you know, where they are and what is possible, um, then you're in for a boatload of, of surprise. It pretty much comes down to details, 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 details. And if you're dealing with a lawyer on your side who you notice is not detail-oriented, then is it time to get a different lawyer, number one? And then number two, when it comes to someone who doesn't have money to even have a lawyer, mm-hmm. you know, with your book, um, do, you, do you spell things out for them of what they can do? Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, again, if you are one that doesn't have a lawyer, get as many books on divorcing a narcissist as you can. Um, it's, it's as simple as that. You will see all the things that are possible with the helpful suggestion of what you can do in that case, right? To prevent like the, the parenting issues and things like that. Right now on my dining room table, I think there's 11, um, you know, parenting plan books. Get one. Start there. Oh, who's going to pay for their cell phone? When does the child get their ears pierced? Do we agree that they can get a tattoo or not? What if we don't agree on these things? What's the policy? Simple. You, you pretty much, the way you're explaining it is, you have to really map out your life. Everything. Your kids' lives. Your kids' lives. Every, but everything that's going on. Until your the children are 18 years old. What are they going to need? What are they going You have to really be like, this is what it is. If you are someone who is uh, has friends whose children have uh, gotten to the age of 18 already, you get them on the phone. You ask them every single question. What happened every single year? What was every day like? You, you have to go to that detail. If you don't, you're going to get stuck and you're going to back up and it's always 20,000. I mean, I guess it's the people I talk to that have just had to fight with with the narcissist. It's always $10,000, $20,000 to find out that your kid needs braces. Like that's your child's education, right? Um, Where do we, how do we do this? How are we going to coordinate this? Like people should have had this questionnaire filled out before they even got married. We should have thought, how do we want to raise our children? What kind of things do we want our children to be involved in? What if your kid decides to take up some musical instrument and their lessons are expensive and, and the, you, you know, the instrument is expensive? Who's going to pay for that? Well, they say, I don't really want to. And then the game's over and your kid is, is you know, they're not caring. This is the no empathy. They don't have the empathy for their children and what they want. They're going to enforce what they want to pay for because it's control over you 
not any interest in the child. The biggest mistake I see with the divorce decrees is that they like plan for the kid at five years old. That's when we got a divorce. You know, my kid's going to go to preschool and la, 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 la. Well, that doesn't help you when they're teenagers. Pretty much what you're explaining, and this maybe is the best analogy to give for people. It's like you're signing a contract with an insurance company. And the insurance company has put in there all these little things for them to not pay out <laughs> when the time comes. That's a perfect analogy. I love that. And, you know, you have to make sure because they're sending you, an insurance company is sending you a form that they've created a long time ago. And it's, you know, they're hiding things. You're mm-hmm. creating a, a document with someone from scratch. So it's different in that way. But yeah. you have to, you have to be the one who's creating the form over uh, the other person, so you know exactly what is in there. Right, and a lot of times these kind of technical little, this is what we're going to do, like moving and, and relocation clauses. A lot of people don't even think about that. Well, I relocated from my son's father after I married the narc, and um, we moved two thousand miles away. So we had to go back and reevaluate the custody plan. He couldn't see him every other Sunday. And suddenly I was paying for his father to fly to Colorado from Connecticut every other weekend, his hotel, his airfare, his car. And then on the other weekend, I was supposed to fly back to New York and pay for that and then pick up my son and bring him back home. Like I got the worst deal because I didn't really think about that relocation in the divorce. Now I wasn't thinking about getting remarried when I divorced, but I never thought about adding a re- a relocation clause. You don't do something like that. You don't know what your life is going to bring, and it might not be this year. It might be in ten years, and they can stop you from moving, and then maybe not get the job or whatever else you were moving for. They've got the power to do that if you don't have it in the original decree. So is there anything else about your book that we should know? Uh, they can get it on Amazon and it's got these beautiful pictures. And again, we're not on film, but I had a survivor from one of my support groups draw these gorgeous pictures. And um, it's just a different kind of experience. I'm so proud of it. You know, I had to overcome the demons of my parents' voices in my head. You'll never be good enough. And actually, my father's last thing he said last December before he died You're writing a book? Who the hell is going to read that? You never even wrote a term paper. That echoed in my head every word. And it it was hard to overcome. But I had to fight those demons and go, no, I know what I'm talking about here. I say it to 20 people a day. I know what I'm talking about. And take that voice off. So no matter what you're doing in life, like the voices that they have given you, you have to learn to shut those down and know your truth. And that's going to help you wherever you are, whether you're divorcing or it is your parents, know your truth. So we have audience questions. Want to take them? Sure. All right. Here we go. The first one, I can't stop thinking of my ex. How do you help people with ruminating thoughts of their abuser? Really good one. I just or made is a that video- a whole episode. 
That's a total episode. I just rec- I just haven't uploaded. We uploaded it yesterday. I did a whole video on the rumination and how to stop it. And I had um, Brie Monchet, who is the founder of World Narcissist Abuse Awareness Day, give us the tips for stopping the rumination. Um, it, it becomes knowing your truth, knowing, um, you know, that this isn't good. It becomes something where you're turning it off in your head. And this is, you know, way into a different level of, of what's going on here. But when you're ruminating about them, it's because it's unresolved. And we want resolution. We want to know why this happened and how could they do that? And, oh, my God, I'm remembering this time, right? I say journal. I say pick up a book and write it down. Get it out of your head. I tell my clients that keeping this thought bouncing around like a ping pong ball in your head is only keeping it bouncing around. But write it out. Ask yourself the questions. Well, why can't I get rid of this thought? Why? Does it bother me? It bothers me because I don't understand it. Well, then you have to learn to accept what you can't fix or change. We can't change them. We can't change yesterday. We can accept that that happened and decide that I'm not going to hold on to, like we talked about those emotions, right? Those feelings that we have. We can separate the feelings from what happened so that it's just a memory. Yeah, they cheated 85 times and they did this and they stole all your money. Can't change that. So we have to, in a way, not accept it and grant them immunity, but inside our hearts, let that go so that we take back the control of it bouncing around in our head. And the next question which is an interesting question. Uh At what point is all my research on my ex and their behavior unhealthy for me? Um, When you know all the red flags, when you know um, all the different things, the behaviors, the cycle, when you know, oh my gosh, without question, again, walks like a duck. We're getting all of this stuff. Check, check, check. Stop watching the YouTube videos and turn to healing stuff. Like, that's the biggest thing I see is that they don't know, like, well, if I watch one more person that ruined their holidays, that'll validate me even more. Well, it's been three years. It's time you knew that they ruined all the holidays. Learning about it and seeing it is keeping you in yesterday. It's not making you go forward. It's keeping you in that moment of that panic, that trauma, that feeling. So as soon as you can, like realize what's happening and go, okay, right now I'm safe. And, um, you know, I don't need to hold on to listening to more YouTubes or podcasts in our case, right? We don't need to keep doing that. You've learned about them. Pick up a book on abandonment wounds, pick up a book on shame. If you're struggling with guilt and that's what they controls you with, heal that guilt wound, heal that What wounds do you have from, you know, this kind of abuse? Are you riddled with fear? Like, that's a big one. When we go through this, we're afraid. We're afraid to trust again. So pick up five books on trust. Learn it. So, Tracy, I just want to thank you so much for being here today. You shared so much information with everyone in our audience. So big thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here and sharing everything. And for those that want to get a hold of Tracy, please do go to NarcissistAbuseSupport.com. 
com. That will be in the show notes. And from Tracy and I, we hope you have a good night.